This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. On this episode, we're discussing changing views of plants in 19th century America and how writers use literature to explore and shape those views. In 1866, poet Emily Dickinson from her home in Amherst, Massachusetts, wrote to friends, quote, My flowers are near and foreign, and I have but to cross the floor to stand in the spice aisles, unquote. A 21st century listener might take for granted the idea that plants that originated across the globe could be available in one's home. But the 19th century poet still found this remarkable. By the early 19th century, as trade and imperial conquest expanded countries' reach, there was increasing interest in transporting plants across the globe. But many live plants were fragile and didn't survive the lengthy journeys by land or sea. London physician Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward began to experiment with growing plants in glass cases, which protected them from the terrible air pollution in London. And within a few years, he had a thriving garden under glass, what journalist John Claudius Loudon described in 1834 as, quote, the most extraordinary city garden we have ever beheld, unquote. Within a few years, the so-called Wardian cases were in wide use, transporting live plants on long ocean voyages. In 1840, the privately held Kew Gardens in southwest London became a national botanic garden and a center for scientific research. Now under the direction of Sir William Hooker, the gardens were opened to the public. A year later, Sir William's son, Joseph, a future director of Kew himself, used Wardian cases to successfully bring plants from the Falklands to Kew for public display. In the late 1840s, Scottish botanist Robert Fortune used Wardian cases to smuggle 20,000 tea plants from China to British India, where the Chinese variety of Camellia sinensis is still used in Darjeeling tea. Across the Atlantic, the revolution in global plant availability captivated the attention of 19th century Americans. In 1829, a teacher in Troy, New York, Elmira Hart Lincoln Phelps, 
published her first textbook, titled Familiar Lectures on Botany. The book, written to be accessible for beginners, encouraged students, especially young women, to learn about the natural world around them. Familiar Lectures on Botany was wildly popular, going through 28 editions. One young woman who learned from Almira Phelps's textbook was Emily Dickinson, born in Massachusetts in 1830, who attended Amherst Academy from 1840 to 1847, where, along with subjects like Latin, philosophy, and geology, students learned about botany. As a teenager, Dickinson assembled an herbarium, pressing 424 specimens of dried plants into an album, each plant accompanied by its scientific name, handwritten by Dickinson. Fittingly, in Dickinson's own copy of Familiar Lectures on Botany, is a dried flower pressed in between the pages by Dickinson. For Dickinson, a keen gardener, the language of plants suffuses her poetry, as in this verse from 1859. Flowers, well, if anybody, can the ecstasy define. Half a transport, half a trouble, with which flowers humble men. Anybody finds the fountain from which floods so contra flow. I will give him all the daisies which on the hillside blow. Too much pathos in their faces for a simple breast like mine. Butterflies from St. Domingo cruising round the purple line have a system of aesthetics far superior to mine. Another New England gardener whose plant imagery abounds in her writing is abolitionist Harriet Beecher Stowe, born in Connecticut in 1811. Like Dickinson, Stowe pressed dried flowers into books she also created floral paintings, some of which can still be seen in the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. Stowe, with a keen eye for plants, understood the importance of botanical accuracy in her symbolism. When landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted returned from a tour of the American South in 1856, Stowe wrote to him, asking for details. Quote, of what species is the pine of which you make so great mention, and of which the greater part of the pine forests are composed? Are the mosses and flowers which grow under them of the same species that grow in the pine forests in the northern states? It is absolutely necessary for me to get a perfect, definite idea of the country where I suppose the scene will be laid and in conversing with you, I could do it." Unquote. Fellow New Englander Nathaniel Hawthorne, born in Massachusetts in 1804, developed a love of nature as a child while living with relatives in the wilds of Raymond, Maine. He later wrote, quote, Those were delightful days 
for that part of the country was wild then, with only scattered clearings and nine-tenths of it primeval woods, unquote. Even after returning to Massachusetts for schooling and longing for the freedom of Maine, Hawthorne was surrounded by nature. His uncle, Robert Manning, with whom he lived, was a founding member of the Massachusetts Horticultural Society. Hawthorne's writing often plays with the tensions between the wilderness of nature and human attempts at order. As he wrote in 1837, quote, A person to spend all his life and splendid talents in trying to achieve something naturally impossible as to make a conquest over nature. Unquote. It was not only native New Englanders who were captivated by plant life. Frederick Douglass, born into slavery in Maryland in 1818, also understood this tension between humans and plants. He witnessed enslaved people who worked the land, growing crops for plantation owners, who then denied the food from those crops to the very people who had grown them. In 1849, after he had escaped slavery, Douglas wrote in the North Star about growing pumpkins, saying, quote, It is not so much the good quality of pumpkins to which we should call attention as to the good moral we have extracted from them. The ground was prepared, seed sown, and the plant cultivated by our own colored hands. And although the soil is American, it took no offense on account of our color but yielded a generous return for our industry. From this, we infer that the earth has no prejudice against color, and that nature is no respecter of persons. It pours its treasures as liberally into the lap of colored industry as into that of white husbandsmen. The earth is a preacher of righteousness. It inculcates justice, love, and mercy repudiates the fractious distinctions of pride and prejudice, and owns all the sons and daughters of men, without regard to color, as its own dear children." At the end of his life, Douglas lived in the Anacostia neighborhood of D.C., in a mansion he named Cedar Hill for the cedar trees on the property. At Cedar Hill, Douglas gardened extensively, and like Dickinson and Stowe, pressed floral specimens into books. Joining me in this episode to discuss the changing views of plants in the 19th century and the literary explorations of them is Dr. Mary Kuhn, Assistant Professor of English at the University of Virginia and author of The Garden Politic, Global Plants and Botanical Nationalism in 19th Century America.
Hi, Mary. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start by asking just a little bit about how you got interested in the notion of plant studies and literature, how you came to this topic. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there are always so many ways to to answer a question like that. One answer is that I grew up uh, right in front of a swamp that separated my parents' house from a, the regional high school. And I spent a lot of time out there as a little kid. And so I've always been interested in, um, and I worked in backcountry huts during uh, the summers of my college job. So I've always really been interested in spending time in in and among uh, sort of planty spaces and worlds. And when I got to graduate school, I knew I was interested in ideas of place. And I started, while I was reading for coursework, I started seeing plants pop up everywhere. And I got really interested in domestic fiction, which is a really popular genre in the mid 19th century. And there was so much plant life in this domestic fiction. And, you know, at one point Hawthorne talks about uh, plants as part of the family. And I got really interested. What does it mean for plants to be part of the family? How do we think about our relationship to plants, you know, that are not just out and about in the world, but part of our homes, um, some things that we relate to in the everyday and the ordinary. And as I started to do research, you know, I discovered that the 19th century, there's just this efflorescence of botanical interest. You know, there are kind of these horticultural crazes or all of these changes in technology that change access to, to plants. And so there's a lot shifting in this period that makes it really interesting to sort of think about, about plant life. And when I started thinking about this project back in, um, you know, I entered grad school in 2007, animal studies was, um, you know, a, a field and Harriet Ritvo was at MIT, you know, someone who's done amazing work in animal studies. And there wasn't a lot on, on the study of plants uh, or the, the, the conversations about plants in domestic literature were largely focused on sexuality and gender, which is a huge part of the story. But there wasn't a lot of conversation about the kind of political dimensions of of these plants, which, you know, the history of science and environmental history has really uncovered and, and talked really deeply about the ways in which plants mobilized imperial reach, um, you know, and were the objects of, of imperial desire, right? So um, Chincona becomes this, this tool for empires to, um, you know, extend their reach and very coveted as such, you know. And so I was thinking, how do these two things relate to one another? The the history of plants as political objects in terms of, you know, the history of bioprospecting and also the history of plantation slavery and these plants that people are encountering in their their everyday lives. Yeah, I, uh, I realized as I was reading your book, I read a lot of currently written, so contemporary mystery novels about the 19th century, <laughs> especially in England, but, you know, some in America too. And I, I realized how often plants show up in those stories in poisons that they're doing or that the murder happens in Kew Gardens or something, you know, and that it really does even looking back show up a ton. So that was, that was really interesting. <laughs> it's amazing when you start paying attention to it. I mean, I think that was a really fun part of the project. I was like, it's everywhere. And, it, <laughs> and you know, in, across all these different genres. And I mean, when you get into the 20th century and science fiction, I mean, there's all this, you know, the day of the Triffids. And I mean, you get all of this really incredible sort of, you know, imaginative work on, on plant agency and consciousness. And one of the cool things that I discovered doing the research for this is that 
you know, a lot of the conversations about plant animacy and intelligence today, like there's a 19th century analog to that, which was really cool to see playing out across periodicals. And yeah. So what are some of the technological things happening in the 19th century that uh, that really changed the game a lot and, and these authors that we're going to talk about are really reacting to? So, I mean, one thing is the invention of the Wardian case, which is a glass box essentially that allows for you to ship a plant and have it stay alive uh, b- because it can live on the deck of a ship and get the sun that way. Um, but it's protected from the salt water, the kind of corrosive effects of, of salt water. Um, and this really revolutionizes the number of plants that are able to take long oceanic journeys. Um, so whereas there was a very slim survival rate for plants, you know, in previous versions of kind of wooden boxes packed away, um, suddenly you have a a lot more plants um, able to make it these like long, long distances. So that's that's one big shift. Another is shift in greenhouse technology, um, the ability to, um, you know, like iron hinge sash bars that let you kind of raise and lower um, the the roof of the of the glass. So you and then you have places like Kew Gardens that become these centers where people can come and basically, um, you know, in the Palm House, you can go up a spiral staircase and then stare down at the kind of imperial bounty. So there's this way that Q becomes a kind of organic and, you know, um, I'll put that in heavy quotation marks, symbol of the kind of the reach of of the British Empire. And, uh, you know, the, the naturalness of that, there's this kind of like, oh, look, isn't this amazing and natural? And so, that's a big shift as well. Another shift is that there's the development of horticultural societies in, in the U.S. So there, there be, it becomes really a sort of middle class. It becomes access, more accessible to the middle class to to both have things like greenhouses, like Dickinson has a hothouse attached to the side um, of the house. I grew up in Amherst. It was not there when I was growing up, but they've, they've since, um, they did an archaeological dig beneath it to make sure they weren't going to erect a replacement over something archaeologically interesting. And then they, and then they put it back up about five years ago, I think. So suddenly, you know, that that's a, that's something that, that is accessible to the middle-class not just to sort of see these plants, um, you know, that are from other climates, you know, in a greenhouse in New York or, or London, but to see them growing in your own home. So, and, and at places like Kew, there are actually tunnels running coal underneath the palm house to heat the palm house. And then another tunnel that's basically funneling the smoke away so that it can, so that aesthetically it kind of looks like um, there's no labor or input to this magical system. And then, and then seed catalogs are this other, um, you know, suddenly you have all these access to all these seeds um, and seed catalogs are telling you where these things are originally from. And originally from, again, is uh, in quotation marks because that's kind of a, a conjecture and plants are found all over the, the globe. But there's a real fascination. And, oh, this came from Australia or this came from this particular mountain region. Um, so Rebecca Solnit talks about photography and other technologies that kind of annihilate space and time. And the greenhouse and the seed catalog kind of function in that same way so that someone like Dickinson can say, I only have to cross the, the floor to, to stand in the spice aisles. That not, might not be exactly what the right quote, but it's, some, it's something like that. Um, so that idea of these 
other geographies being somehow rendered material in some way to the imagination through the cultivation of plants at home. Mm-hmm. So then you uh, you mentioned earlier domestic literature. So you, you find these authors uh, within the U.S. And of course, you're writing about a lot, but you have sort of five main authors that you're talking mm-hmm. about in, in your book. How did you choose the the people you wanted to write about, the texts of theirs? Uh, you know, a lot of them have enormous catalogs, <laughs> you know, but how did you hone in on on what you wanted to look at to, to do this analysis? I mean, I think one of the things that was kind of fun to discover is that a lot of popular writers in the 19th century were gardeners, were passionate gardeners. So, you know, Stowe was a prolific gardener by, uh, by all accounts. Um, she's writing newspaper articles about about the garden, and for her, it became really noticeable reading um, her second big abolitionist novel, Dread, that plants are just everywhere in that novel, and become um, you know her thinking about modes of ecological relation is something that she mobilizes towards abolitionist ends, and so I really just got interested in in authors who were were gardeners. So Hawthorne is the nephew of one of the 19th century's uh, most famous pomologists. And um, so he has this sort of incredible window through his uncle um, into some of these, you know, horticultural experiments. And he also was, you know, experimenting in his own garden and, you know, complaining about things that, you know, garden failures. And it was interesting there too, to see the kind of overlap or the way that that crosses over into some of the botanical figuration in his stories. Um, so the rose bush by the prison door and the scarlet letter and the hothouse flower that Zenobia wears in her hair and the Blythe romance. And it's all over the House of Seven Gables, Alice's posy, which is growing out of the roof of the house. <laughs> and, you know, there's some horticultural pension who had buried some seeds away. I mean, it's just, it's all over some of these texts. So it, in reading the works of of these authors, it just uh, becomes really ubiquitous. And Douglas too, his wife was by all account, really the, um, his first wife, Anna Murray was by all accounts, really like the prolific gardener in the household. But at, at Cedar Hill, late in his life, he was growing strawberries. He had a peach orchard in Rochester. Um, and Rochester was this was this center of um, sort of horticultural innovation also. And so James Vick, who becomes a sort of, uh, he edits the horticulturalist and, and also has one of the most widely read seed catalogs. He's a support, early supporter of um, Frederick Douglass's paper. So there are all of these sort of modes of crossover and, and Lydia Mariah Child, who's the first chapter of the book, her husband does an experiment with beet, an ultimately unsuccessful experiment with beet sugar farming in Western Massachusetts as an alternative to cane sugar and the sort of plantation labor associated with that. And Dickinson, as I mentioned before, was, um, you know, a sort of incredible gardener. And she's receiving these cuttings from friends um, who are missionary wives in Syria, she gets cutting from India, Germany, various places that these are all in her herbarium. So it's, yeah, the the choice of authors was really guided by the fact that they both were authors who, um, authors and gardeners, and that those identities were really linked. So I want to ask a little bit about method. I interview a lot of historians. And so, you know, I, I think people understand sort of going into archives and stuff. I want to 
talk a little bit about uh, when you're writing about authors who've been read a lot, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of secondary literature about someone like Hawthorne, of course. How do you, how do you sort of take the, everything that is known about these people, secondary literature and stuff, and then use your own reading of a text and your own mode of analysis and your own lens through which you're looking at this, uh, just a little bit about kind of how, how you do that, what your approach is. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm married to a historian, so I think I, I hear a lot about historical methods, and 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 I, I also, when I was sort of figuring this project out, I realized that the history was incredibly important to the, mm-hmm. to telling the story. That to understand how these authors are engaging with plants, I needed to understand things about developments in horticultural technology and you know gardening practices and how they transform over the course of of the 19th century. So. You know, I did a, a lot of secondary reading was, you know, reading the works, the literary critical works, and then a lot of uh, reading of histories of science, environmental histories, and then spending time at places like um, Kew Gardens and the uh, the British Library and, um, you know, various sites in, in the U.S. So doing some of that kind of arch- archival reach, but then also thinking about, you know, what does, what kind of lens can literature or what kind of insights can, can literature offer? Um, or how does literature engage with history, you know, in, in certain ways, how did, you know, Hawthorne famously, you know, uses historical fiction or, or, you know, to kind of engage with contemporary issues for him. And so I'm not sure this is sort of like, you know, I feel like method is an ever evolving, um, <laughs> ever evolving question, but sort of trying to figure out what does it mean, for instance, that, you know, in, in 1824, Lydia Mariah Child is writing a book that ends with a Native American man as a gardener standing outside the the nation, which is described as, uh, you know, a mighty tree. So the gardener figure, but um, being excluded and sort of thinking about, okay, what's what's the kind of story that she's that she's telling here how does this relate to what's happening in terms of with various laws i guess like your own reading it's a kind of back and forth between reading the close reading the story and thinking about what are the the historical things that might be shaping what what the individual is, is saying um so i mean again that's kind of a new historicist approach i guess um to kind of think about how is this this plot line being shaped by things that we know are going on at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the things of course, going on at the moment in the 19th century is this desire to impose order on everything and (laughs) to sort of systematize everything, understand everything. And of course, nature doesn't always want to respond to that. Nature is wild, but they're trying to do this through things like their gardening. So can you talk a little bit about in the, the authors you're looking at, this this tension that plays out the wanting to impose order versus nature being wild. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I always think of Hawthorne with this because he seems really bothered by some of like by failure, and I think one of the the one of the things to to sort of think about in terms of domestic gardening, I guess, is how much failure was a part of the story, and it's not a part of the story that's often you know celebrated or put forward because what's being put forward is like, look at this amazing, you know, camellia bouquet that I was able to harvest or the, the successes, right? But that the actual experience of living with plants was, you know, one of like 
there's there are pests, there are frosts, things things fail to thrive, you don't know why. And so I think in the home sphere, there is this attempt to kind of cultivate plants in terms of an orderliness. And all of the rhetoric around this is, you know, there, there's a rhetoric of cultivation that extends to, you know, human education as well. So the idea that like cultivate your garden and you are cultivating good morals and you're cultivating a good, um, you know, a keen sensibility. It's one of the reasons why botany is celebrated for women in the late 1820s and 1830s as sort of botany becomes uh, part of the curriculum at women's educational institutions is that it is, you know, there is this sense of of orderliness and um, that that will translate into domestic orderliness and good morals. And yet there's, there is constantly a sense of things, things not things not working out and people having to kind of adapt. And then there are also the ways in which plants themselves challenge these categories. So one of the things that people cannot really determine in the mid 19th century is like, where does the animal end and the vegetable begin? Um, So Edward Hitchcock gives a lecture, like one of his lectures on botany in Amherst College is basically, you know, ruminating, part of the lecture is ruminating on this question of like, we don't really know where the animal ends and the and the plant begins. And so, you know, there is constantly, and this is a point that Harriet Ritvogan makes in The Platypus and the Mermaid, like the more you try to impose taxonomic, taxonomic order, you discover plants or animals or things that, that challenge those efforts to impose order. And so that was a really interesting um, thread of this, of this story. And there's this 19th century text by a French author, XB something called Picciola about this man who makes an attempt on Napoleon's life, which doesn't end well. So he ends up in prison and um, he is sort of, there's this redemption arc where he falls in love with this plant growing up through the cracks in uh, his prison courtyard. And uh, he becomes totally obsessed with keeping this thing alive. And the sort of climax of the book is when the, when it's the plant has gotten so big that it's threatening to be uh, it's outgrown the little crack. Um, And so the daughter of another prisoner is like, I will ride to Napoleon on your behalf and, you know, like plead for them to sort of help save your plant. And so there, there are all these, you know, moments of, of people thinking through the challenges of what does it mean to keep this other form of life alive? And, and the kind of challenges of that, both the kind of intimacy of these experiences and just the, the sense of not being able to communicate with this other form of life and the kind of guesswork involved. Yeah. Yeah. Another theme, of course, in the 19th century, especially in the United States is racism and slavery. And there are lots of moments where people are uh, seeming to use, to use plant life as a, an analog for race in various ways that you, that you outline. And then also several of the writers that you talk about are using Plants are using botany to think through slavery. And, you know, I, I think it, it reminded me a little bit of the way that people use the Bible, right? Like you could use the Bible to support this side, or you could use it to support this side. Uh, you know, the, that really you could use this idea of plants, of horticulture in, you know, in, in various arguments that you wanted to make. But the authors that you're looking at, what, what are they doing here? How are they thinking through these ideas of, of race and of slavery? Yeah. So there's, the answer is there are many, many different ways. 
back to your question about um, sort of categorization, one thing that there's, you know, the great chain of being and ideas of sort of hierarchies of, of being. And one thing that happens with plants, ideas of plants as being animate or sensitive suddenly challenges the idea that they're, um, that they're, that it's passive life. And so then you have a sort of sense of, you know, author saying, well, can we use this to kind of push on other hierarchies of life in the, in the 19th century and constructions of, of life? And that, so that, that's one way that, you know, someone like Stowe is trying to kind of um, think through the, these categorizations of, of life and, and push back against ideas of racial hierarchy. Another thing, you know, that you see is gardening and the kind of, the kind of care practices of taking care of plants. Various authors use that to push back against the, to push back against plantation slavery and plan, um, and plantations. So one thing that happens across the 19th century is there's a, a lot of soil exhaustion in the South. And Kristen Ellis has written a really good article about the way that Douglas, you know, mobilizes that as an abolitionist argument. But one of the sort of interesting things that happens is that you have something like scientific agriculture emerge across this time with ideas of, you know, chemical applications to soil to rejuvenate them that is used to very different political ends in um, in the North and in the South. So Southern periodicals, you know, across the middle of the 19th century are thinking about how do we horticulturally innovate to sustain this system, right? And, um, and so someone like Douglas, I think, as an editor um, of several newspapers is, is, you know, paying attention to that and also paying attention to what are the other ways that we might imagine agriculture and agricultural system that uh, does not depend on on slavery so the, the kind of mobilization of um you know different imaginations of yeah different imaginations of how agriculture um so there's, there's a good article by jennifer james that talk, i think it's called buried in guano where she talks about how the history of guano applications and how that is used to divergent ends in in the north and south as well yeah, I, I, I was thinking through too. It's so interesting, this idea that in slavery society and plantation society, the people who are working the land, who in, in some ways must have the most expertise about what is working, are are not the people who ha- are empowered to make decisions and you know, are not the people who are benefiting from the land either. I I, I think you, you talk about some of that that tension as well, I think, but it I think it 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 really challenges some of these notions of what can we do to to get ourselves out of this problem of you know soil depletion or something. Well, there are people who are experts right here that that you're not talking to about about the ways, uh, and of course, who would have no incentive to continue the the system of slavery. You know, and there are small garden plots. Um, you know, so like Douglas's grandmother is growing growing food that she's um, selling or, or and she's helping other people with their own cultivation so there there are there were frequently you know near large plantations there were small garden plots that enslaved people where enslaved people grew food medicine for themselves family friends and there's less of a of an archival record of of these sites of, of expertise, but um, you know, thinking again about 
other spaces of cultivation that exist alongside um, these spaces of extraction, I think is a really, really important part of the part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that animal studies was a, a, a growing field uh, and plant studies is, is not gotten the same sort of attention. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why, why is that and why plant studies uh, is important and, you know, but per, perhaps will and should get, get more attention. And I think, I think that one thing that's been really exciting is that there's been a, a real burgeoning of interest in in plants. So books like Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, The Overstory by Richard Powers. Then, you know, there, there are books like The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Villabin. And um, you know, those are just a those are just a couple. Um, you know, but I know like Radio Lab did a Smarty Plants episode. Like there's uh, Michael Pollan wrote uh, an article in the New Yorker that came out when I was in grad school called the I think it's called the Intelligent Plant. There's been a, a sort of shift back to thinking about these questions of plants as animate. I, so I think some of that has to has to do with received ideas of plants as passive matter to be subject to you know our, our own whims, modes of meaning making, and so plant studies. You know, there, there's been a sort of rise in conversations about thinking about like actually plants are everywhere. They're they're everywhere in the literature um, and they're everywhere in our lives. I've been, you know, really interested with with the pandemic, how much um, you know, like if you look at the numbers of plants sold, like house plants sold uh during the pandemic, it skyrocketed, right? Um and and thinking about gardening practices in in the pandemic um i think is sort of i don't think the pandemic is what caused the shift to to plant studies but i do think you know that there's been just more attention recently um returned back to to plants and i think the climate crisis also has something to do with that i mean reading about shifts in you know when i i grew up in western massachusetts and you know i went maple sugaring and a lot of the sugaring has shifted north as uh climate has, um, has shifted. So I think, you know, plant studies, I think in general, there's been a shift towards thinking about multi-species. How do you tell a story that is, um, not just about plants or not just about animals, but also about microbes and viruses, you know, if you're thinking about the pandemic, that, that to, to really tell a, a sort of complete history of, of, uh, what's happening. I mean, this is a, again, I think a lesson from environmental history, you have to think about, agents that are non-human and, you know, non-human more than human and think differently about, yeah, modes, modes of relation and, and the modes of relation that have kind of led us to our current moment as well. Can you talk a little bit about the challenge of the language you're using though? Uh, you, you talk some in your book about that, that, you know, you, you don't want to fall in the trap of anthropomorphic language, but what do you use then? So I, what, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that is, it, that's something that has sort of long interested me is what happens when you run up against the limit, the limits of language. I mean, and this is a, this is a very literary question, right? Um, and I, it's why I think poetry can be so powerful at kind of thinking through these, these ideas of, you know, how do you explain, how do you explain life lived otherwise uh, that you don't have, you know, full understanding of, um, you know, and, and there's been really interesting recent 
work, um, Hope Jellen, who wrote Lab Girl, you know, so kind of says like, don't try to compare plants to us because that reduces them in a certain way. Like it reduces the complexity of the way that they 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 live. And so there's this real, I I think, effort to sort of also acknowledge what we don't know about 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 plants. And so thinking about, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, these are loaded terms, you know, talking about plant consciousness and intelligence. But I think it's it's really productive to interrogate, well, what do what do we mean when we de- when we deploy these these terms? Um, what kind of associations come with them? And how do those associations and ideas lead us to sort of think about the assumptions that we make in our daily in our daily lives? Um, so I think language can be a really useful way to into these questions of what kind of assumptions do I make through habitual, the kind of habitual language that I reach for, and how does drawing attention to some of these words actually help us think about relation differently? And again, I think this is a point, this is something that Robin Wall Kimmer talks about in a chapter in Braiding Sweetgrass, where she talks about learning the language of animacy, where she says in Potawatomi, you can be a bay, that, that animacy is inherent in a lot in a mountain, in a bay, in, in things that English calls it, you know, and treats as a, as a, as a passive object. Um, so that grammar is a way of, this is her point, you know, grammar is a mode of relation. Um, and so how can we call attention to that, to again, think about and interrogate our relationships? So if people would like to read your book, how can they get a copy? You can order it from your local bookstore uh, is probably the the best way or um, the NYU website, or I think it's available on, you know, Amazon and all of those other interweb spaces as well. Well, Mary, thank you so much. This was a, a fun book and a fun conversation. Thank you so much, Kelly. I really, really appreciate it. Down by the Thanks for listening to Unsung History. Please subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app. You can find the sources used for this episode in a full episode transcript at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions, corrections, praise, or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and tell everyone you know. Bye! NSW.